Our text for the sermon this morning is John chapter 8, verses 33 to 36. John 8, 33 to 36. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is God's word. Let's ask his help as we study it at greater depth. Oh Lord, help us as we continue to plod our way through John's Gospel, to understand what is said here and taught here by the Lord Jesus, we again ask you for the help of your Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we are making our way through the Gospel of John. And last Sunday we looked at basically verses 30 to 32 of John chapter 8. As Jesus was saying these things, we, we read, many believed in him. But then there's this dialogue that happens between Jesus and these supposed new believers. In verse 31, Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So he gives them marks of what it will look like, what will manifest in their lives, if it is that they are truly his disciples. And we pick up today with their response to this statement. The truth will set you free. They answered Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, obviously, the Jews were not speaking about political or otherwise outward slavery, since, as D.A. Carson puts it, there is scarcely a major power whom the Jews had not served. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and Rome had all held the Jews in political captivity. And so, obviously, then, the Jews, to their credit, who had believed in Jesus, these people to whom Jesus was speaking, to their credit, they picked up on the fact that Jesus wasn't talking about that kind of political or outward slavery, but that Jesus had some other sort of slavery in mind. However, the Jews obviously thought that by virtue of their descendancy from Abraham, that it was impossible that they could be considered slaves. After all, that is the basis of their objection here, isn't it? We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The sense of their objection is, they're not just stating a random fact, we are the offspring of Abraham. Oh, and on another totally different note, we have never been enslaved to anyone. The sense of it is we are the offspring of Abraham and therefore, we have never been enslaved to anyone because we are Abraham's offspring. 
how could how could you say that Abraham's offspring are slaves? That's essentially what the Jews who had believed in Jesus are saying to Jesus in response to his statement, the truth will set you free. You will become free. Jesus answers their objection with a metaphor about a house or a household. That's the sense of it here. And Jesus' metaphor compares sons in the household with slaves in the household. And this morning we will consider three things. The first is the sense in which the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking here were in the house or in the household of God. The second is the status within the house, within the household of these Jews to whom Jesus was speaking. And the third is the manner in which their status could change. So let's begin with the first, which is the sense in which the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking here were actually in the house or in the household of God. Jesus implicitly grants that these Jews are in the house. Look at uh, verse 35. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So Jesus has called these people slaves and says that they will become free. And they say, we've never been enslaved. We're Abraham's children. But Jesus responds with this metaphor, right? But even within his metaphor, he's called them slaves, and he grants within his metaphor that, yes, slaves can be in the house. And so Jesus is implicitly acknowledging here that there is some sense in which these people who had professed to believe in him, who were Abraham's offspring, but as we will see later on in verse 59, actually try to kill Jesus, manifesting that they're actually not really true believers. There is a sense in which these people who are not true believers, who are slaves to sin, as the context indicates, who are uh, Abraham's offspring, who are slaves to sin, are actually legitimately in the house. The house is a metaphor here for God's covenant people, which is clear from the connection with Abraham. That's the import of this, all this Abraham language, right? So my grandfather's name on my father's side was Anders. So I'm not going to um, just randomly, if I'm disputing with you, just, just make a point about my grandfather's name because that has no relevance to the dispute. Uh, likewise, these people are not just randomly mentioning the name of one of their ancestors. They mention Abraham, and Jesus picks up on this thread of Abraham, as we'll see in subsequent weeks. And there's all this discussion about what it means to be Abraham's children because the issue is covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham, the Jews' relation to that covenant, and what that means in terms of being slaves or sons in the house. 
So the house is God's covenant people, as is clear from the connection with Abraham. So let's explore this a little bit. Jesus grants that they are biologically descended from Abraham. He doesn't actually dispute their biological descendancy. Look at verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. So Jesus grants that they are biologically descended. But Jesus indicates that they're not really, in another sense, children of Abraham. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, etc., etc. So there is some sense in which they are Abraham's offspring, and there is some sense in which they are not. Some sense in which they are children of Abraham, and some sense in which they are not. To understand this, we need to understand the relationship between the Old Covenant, the nature and relationship of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Let's begin with the Old Covenant. God made promises to Abraham which had their first and uh, sort of subsidiary fulfillment in the formation of the nation of Israel. So God had promised to Abraham that he would make his descendants into nations. The first fulfillment of this really, or the, the uh, well, I guess there was Ishmael um, and the nations that came from him and so on and so forth. But the fulfillment that we typically think of in the Judeo-Christian historical uh, vein is the nation of Israel. So God pulls the descendants of Abraham, the biological descendants of Abraham, out of Egypt, brings them to Sinai, gives them his law, gives them a national constitution, essentially makes them into a nation, gives them eventually land, and kings arise from among them in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that kings would come from him. So kings, nations, land, these are the sorts of promises that God gave to Abraham. And the first, but as we will see, somewhat subsidiary fulfillment of this is in the formation of the nation of Israel. Now, question. If you did not believe in Yahweh being the one true God, but you were a circumcised descendant of Jacob, right? so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, thus the people of Israel. If you did not believe that Yahweh was the one true God, but you were a biological descendant of Jacob and you were circumcised, if you did not believe in God's promises of a Messiah, if you didn't care for the laws that God had given, if you didn't love them, if you didn't find them sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, were you legitimately in the Old Covenant? The answer to that question is yes. Because the Old Covenant comprised biological descendants of Abraham. Now, there is a more ultimate fulfillment 
of the promises that God gave to Abraham. A king, a nation, a place to live, land, if you will. And that is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, people from every tribe and language and people and nation gathered into one body in him, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, and who will inherit the earth, as the scripture says, the meek will inherit the earth, the righteous shall never be moved. Uh, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, out of which will be gathered all of the uh, ungodly and the evildoers of the United There is that nation, that king, that land, which also comes from Abraham's uh, loins, so to speak, which is also in fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. Most ultimately, the promises that God made to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Now, the relationship between the Old Covenant people of God and the New Covenant people of God, right? Or the, the people of God in the covenant of grace, that is all those who by faith in Messiah, in the Messiah, come to share in the blessedness of life under Christ Jesus forevermore in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The relationship of the old covenant people of God to those people in the covenant of grace. In Romans chapter 2, in verse 28, we read this. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. What an interesting statement. Because what that means is somebody who is a descendant of Jacob, who is circumcised in the flesh, which is the context of being a Jew outwardly, but does not believe in Yahweh and does not believe in the promises of the Messiah. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28 is explained that that person is not truly a Jew. So they are a Jew, and yet they are not a Jew. Now, are you starting to see parallels and you see where I'm going when we go back to Romans, or pardon me, to John chapter 8? Because Jesus is saying, on the one hand, you're Abraham's children, but on the other hand, you're not Abraham's children. Romans 2 is saying, on the one hand, you're a Jew, but on the other hand, you're not a Jew. Let's go now to Romans chapter 9. Paul is lamenting in the first five verses over the largely unbelieving state of the Jews at that time. So Paul, himself a Jew, is heartbroken that so many Jews are rejecting the gospel. And God knows that promises were made to Abraham's offspring. And so the question is, if God made promises to Abraham's offspring, but so many of Abraham's offspring are rejecting what God is doing in Christ, then has the word of God failed? Will these promises actually be brought to pass, even if the Jews, by and large, reject the Messiah, through whom all the promises will be brought to pass? In verse 6, we pick up, that's the context. 
It is not as though the word of God has failed. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Again, you see the same thing happening as was said in Romans 2, as Jesus was saying in John chapter 8. There are some people who are, in a sense, Jews, in a sense, Abraham's offspring, and yet not Jews, and not Abraham's offspring. And so Paul goes on to explain in, in Romans chapter 9 that uh, there are coming from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's natural descendants, some who come to share in the fulfillment of the promises of God, and some who don't. An exposition of Romans 9 is not really our purpose this morning, though. So let us go now to Galatians chapter 3. And this is what we read in verse 29. If you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, or Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. If you are Messiah's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In chapter 3 and verse 9, just backing up a little bit. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what I want you to see is this. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, among the nation of Israel, constituted a nation at Sinai. There were those who were of faith, along with Abraham. And their faith was in Yahweh, and in his gracious promises, which would ultimately be fulfilled in the Messiah. So there were those in the Old Testament nation of Israel who were of faith, who were messiahs, right? Not that they themselves were messiahs, but they belonged to Messiah. Those were the Jews who were not merely Jews outwardly, but were also Jews inwardly by the Spirit, as Romans 2.29 goes on to say. It is those who are truly Israel. So, in the Old Testament, then, this is where the language of remnants comes in. You may have heard that a remnant, at the present there is a remnant chosen by grace in Romans 11, speaking about the state of the biological Jews in Paul's day. That theme runs throughout the Old Testament. Remember when Elijah is so discouraging, God says, I, I, have, for, I have for myself... Uh, what is it, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's always this subset of persons who are legitimately in the Old Covenant who also belong to the Messiah, who also are people of faith. Okay? Those are the true Jews. Those are the true Israel. Now, those who were not of faith those who did not belong to the Messiah, they were legitimately in the house. They were in the Old Covenant. 
they were privy um, to all of the revelation of the Old Covenant. They witnessed the day-to-day activities that happened in the Old Covenant, the morning sacrifices and the evening sacrifices and all the activity of the temple in the wilderness years. They saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. As they came in to the promised land, they lived under the kings. They saw the construction of the first temple. They saw the armies of Assyria and the armies of Babylon come and uh, conquer them. They were deported to Babylon. They returned. They saw the building of the second. They were in the house. They saw all these things. They were privy to these things. They were among the presence of God and the people of God in the nation of Israel. But those who did not belong to the Messiah, those who were not of faith, were in some sense Abraham's offspring, in some sense Jews, but in some sense not Abraham's offspring, in some sense not Jews. In some sense, they were slaves. They were not sons but slaves. And that brings us to our second point, the status within the house of these Jews to whom Jesus was speaking in John chapter 8. Jesus has already implied that they are slaves. He says, you will become free. Now, if you're not, if you're not free yet, then what are you? Slave. Right? This is, this is what Jesus has explained. And they say, How is it that you say uh, you will become free? We are Abraham's children, and therefore, we have never been enslaved to anyone. Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so, what Jesus is saying here to these people is that Their status, though they are in the house, their status is not the status of a son, but the status of a slave. As unbelievers, which will manifest itself. Remember, they're called believers here. We talked about this last week, though, right? One of the things that John does throughout his gospel is he shows the difference between true belief and uh, counterfeit belief by showing people who he calls believers, but then showing that they manifest actual unbelief. As we read on in John chapter 8, I'll just review this uh, briefly. As we read on in John chapter 8, Jesus says to them in verse 37, you seek to kill me. Again in verse 40, you seek to kill me. They respond to Jesus in uh, verse 41. We were not born of sexual immorality, which is obviously a a mockery of Jesus, the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. They go on to tell Jesus in verse 48 that he has a demon. And in verse 59, they pick up stones to stone him. So I think we can all agree, though these people are called believers and are at the present juncture of our section, it becomes evident that they're actually not, right? 
And so what Jesus is explaining is that though they are in some sense Abraham's offspring, and therefore in some sense Jews, they are not really Abraham's offspring, and not really Jews. Rather, they are like slaves who are in the house but are not sons. Pressed quite literally, this metaphor breaks down somewhat, that this metaphor that Jesus gives. As these people are not slaves of God, who is the master of the house, within Jesus' metaphor, but rather they are slaves to sin. So this is something like a parable, where you don't press necessarily every detail, um, because that would really, that would not make sense, right? God is the master of the house, and not slaves to God, so it doesn't really make sense. That's not Jesus' point. The point that Jesus is making here is that one can participate in a household without actually being family. A slave may reside in a household and be around daily routines like meals and children's bedtimes, and a slave may be around for longer-term milestones like birthdays and graduations and marriages and so forth, and yet still not be a family member. Jesus' statement, the slave does not remain in the house forever, should be taken in the sense of the slave does not necessarily remain in the house forever. A slave may reside in a house for his whole life, and yet still not be a family member. If he does remain, it's not by virtue of his status as a slave, like the master of the house saying, well, he's... He's our slave, therefore he has to always be in our house. If he remains, it's not by virtue of his status as a slave. It's incidental. He just happens to remain in the house for whatever reason. One could be in a household then and not be a family member. One could be in a household even for a long time and not be a family member. The Old Testament era Jews were all in the house, so to speak. They were covenant members, and therefore they resided among God and among God's people. As I said a few moments ago, they were there. Right? They, they saw the morning and evening sacrifices. They followed the cloud and the fire through the wilderness. They saw God raise up the judges and deliver them from the Philistines, and they saw Samson push down the pillars and the Thing came in. They saw the ministry of the various Old Testament prophets. They heard Jeremiah's voice crying out to them, so on and so forth. They saw these things. They were in the house. But those who were not of faith, those who did not belong to the Messiah, were not, in some sense, Jews. Were not, in some sense, Abraham's offspring. Many of them, many of them were still slaves. Now, we're coming to our third point, which is this. The manner in which their status in the house could change. But let me, let me move towards that point by saying this. Not all of God's old covenant people were slaves. Some were sons. Because you see the promises that God made to Abraham, which he was going to bring ultimately to fulfillment, not through the nation formed at Sinai, 
not through Moses and the giving of the law, but through Christ Jesus. Those promises were operative already at the time that God made the promises to Abraham. Jesus says elsewhere, Abraham saw my day and was glad. There was this promise in your seed, and Paul picks that up in Galatians. It says, it doesn't say seeds, plural, right? In your offspring, it doesn't say offsprings, plural, but one, meaning Christ. See, God had already made to Abraham promises of Christ. And so there were those among the old covenant people who were biological descendants of Abraham and Jacob, circumcised in the flesh, who also trusted in Yahweh, who also believed Yahweh's gracious promises, who also looked forward to the day as they listened to the reading from the scroll that a seed of the woman in the early section of that scroll, which we would know as Genesis chapter 3. As that section was read, they heard that a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. There were those among the old covenant people of God who believed and who trusted that one day this anointed one, which is what Messiah and Christ mean in Hebrew and Greek respectively, there were those who trusted that one day this anointed one would come and would indeed crush the serpent's head. There were those as they read or heard read God's promises to Abraham that one day in your seed singular, all of the, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They believed. And all the other promises that had been revealed up to that time, they believed and they said, yes, Yahweh is our God. He has taken us for his people. We take him as our God. We believe his revelation. We believe his promises. We believe there is an anointed one, a Messiah coming, and we vest all of our hope. We put all of our eggs in that basket. Ready? All in. <laughs> all in on this Messiah who is coming. There were people in the Old Covenant who were not merely Jews outwardly, but were also Jews inwardly by the Spirit. We, Gentiles, are united to those sons in one body through Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 2 tells us. That it is by faith, as Galatians 3.9 says, that we are blessed together with Abraham. It is by becoming Christ's that we, also Gentiles, become Abraham's offspring. And so we, like the Jews of old, become sons. And so what we see is that in the covenant of grace, it's not about being Abraham's biological descendant or Jacob's biological descendant and being physically circumcised, but it is about believing in the promises that God is bringing to fulfillment through the Christ, through the Messiah. That is how they became sons in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament times. 
And that is in the New Testament, these New Testament times in which we live. That is how we become sons. And we become one family, one body, as we explored about a month ago, as we were going through Ephesians chapter 2 and showing how God is making one people of both Jews and Gentiles by faith in Christ Jesus. This is how they became sons. This is how we become sons. So, we come to our third point, the manner in which the status of these people to whom Jesus was speaking could change. What is it? By faith, by believing, instead of putting all of their eggs in the basket of being Abraham's biological descendants and saying that is what we are trusting in, shifting their confidence away from that to the Messiah, to the Christ, and saying we want to belong to the Christ. We want to belong to the Messiah. We want to identify him. We want to trust in him. We want to obey him. In other words, we want to, what, what does it say in verses 31 and 32, we want to abide in his word. We want to know the truth. And we want to be set free from our slavery to sin by the Messiah and his word. This is how the Jews of ancient times became sons. This is how Gentiles of present time and Jews of present time become sons. This is also how the people to whom Jesus was addressing himself could become sons. By looking in faith to the Jesus Christ who is standing right before them. Jesus the Messiah who was standing right before them. Rejecting Jesus, the Messiah, would keep them slaves, even though they were Abraham's descendants. Rejecting Jesus, standing right before them, would mean that they would always be enslaved to sin, though they were Abraham's descendants. But conversely, putting faith in Jesus, who was standing right in front of them, they could, it would be anachronistic to say it this way, they could speak the words that Paul penned in Ephesians 2. By grace, I have been saved through faith. By grace, we have been saved through faith. You see, it is not just a matter of biological descent, physical descendancy, but it is a matter of believing, a matter of it is those who are of faith who are blessed together with him. Hebrews 2.10 calls Jesus the founder of our salvation. The founder of our salvation. And in that passage, it says that God was through him bringing many sons to glory. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, 
If the Son sets you free, verse 36, you will be free indeed. This is because we must be set free by the Son. The Son is the founder of our salvation, as Hebrews 2 calls him. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The manner in which these people could be changed from being slaves to sons was by being set free by the Son. Who needs to set them free? The Messiah, the Christ, the Son. It is He who will bring many sons to glory. It is Jesus who will make sons of slaves. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In terms of takeaway, application, if even the Jews of old didn't have any legitimate basis for their confidence and for their hope, apart from being set free by the Son, apart from faith in Christ Jesus, faith in the Messiah. If even the Jews of old had no hope apart from Jesus and his word, and shifting their confidence away from we are children of Abraham to we need the Son to set us free, then what confidence could we have in anything else? or in anyone else. The scripture even acknowledges the blessedness of even being an unbelieving Jew over being an absolute pagan, never having any access to the word of God. It doesn't mean that the unbelieving Jews are saved, but Romans chapter three says, then what advantage has the Jew? Right after explaining that no one is a Jew who is merely one in outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Paul then says, then what advantage has the Jew? He anticipates the question. Well, if, if there's really no advantage to just merely being physically and outwardly circumcised, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Paul says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, they had the word of God. When, at that time, basically the rest of the world was in darkness as to God's special revelation. Romans 9 says that Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, that is the Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. If you could say all of that about yourself, to my people belong the oracles of God. To my people belong the adoption. They were some sense, in some sense, sons of God, right? Again, we're mixing metaphors, right? Um, but God calls Israel his son. 
So don't get confused by that in the sense that Jesus is speaking about in John 8, not all of our sons, but in another sense, God calls the Israelites his sons. To my people belonging oracles, to my people belonging the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To my people belong the patriarchs, and from our race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. If you could truly say that about yourself, but Jesus could look you in the eye and say, you're still a slave, and the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. If someone could even say that, and yet still be a slave, and need to put faith in the Son, then why would we think that we could put confidence anywhere else? Oh, several generations of my family have been Christians. Oh, you know, well, I'm a pastor, and my father was a pastor before me, and so, oh, well, we belong to, you know, the Baptist church, or the Anglican church, or the Presbyterian church, or whatever, right? Oh, our civilization is founded on a Christian principle. If even the Jews of old could legitimately say all of these things, and yet if they were unbelievers, Jesus could call them slaves. Then why would we think we could ride in on anyone else's coattails? Or why would we think that we will be fine because of whatever external circumstances? If even circumcision, the right which was a uh, sign of belonging to God's covenant people in the Old Testament, a legitimate sign of belonging to God's people in the Old Testament, if even that external could be performed upon you, and yet Jesus could say, you're still a slave, and you need the Son to set you free, then why would we place our confidence in any other external right? Oh, I was baptized. So you have a sign of, an external sign of belonging to God's covenant people in the new covenant? Doesn't that kind of parallel in some sense? The sign of circumcision in the old? That didn't help them. Those who were merely circumcised outwardly were still, could still be slaves. Those who undergo even the waters of baptism without the inward reality which it signifies, their baptism won't help them. Why would you think, if the Jews of old could not think that their externals and their family connections could help them, that their religious ceremonies could help them? If even they could not think that, and Jesus could look them in the eye and say, yes, in some sense you're Abraham's children, but in some sense not. Yes, in some sense you're in the house, but you're in the house as slaves, not sons. Why would we place confidence in any external, in any relational connection, in any outward religious ceremonies? Why would we think that those things would save us? Listen. You must be set free by the Son. Every one of you must be set free by the Son if you are to be free indeed. The good news is that Christ is held out in all. The good news is that, as Jesus said even earlier in this gospel, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Even here, Jesus is redemptively interacting with these people. He's telling them they're still slaves, not so that they would stay slaves, but in order that they might realize the actual condition 
that they were in and repent and believe and come to Christ in faith and find that they are numbered with all the sons of God, with the sons special, together with Abraham. The point of preaching a message like this is not to push people out of the church away from Christ. It's to help us reckon with the fact that not all who are physically in the church are in the church. Not all who name the name of Anglican or Baptist or whatever else have been set free by the Son and are free indeed. Not all whose parents were Christians are Christians. We need to hear stuff like this so that we can realize it's not ultimately about externals. It's not ultimately about our religious ceremonies like circumcision or even baptism or the Lord's table. It's not about whoever our father was or our great-grandfather was. It's not about what external privileges we have in terms of our proximity to the oracles of God and our theological understanding of the covenants and the adoption. So it's not about that. You need Jesus to set you free. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. It is those who are of faith who are blessed together with Abraham. A Jew is not a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Not all Israel is Israel. But believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be free indeed. Shift your confidence away from all these other things, and just trust that the Son can set me free. He is the founder of salvation. He's bringing many sons to glory. I don't want to be just externally in the house. I want to be a son in the house. And for that, I need Jesus. Jesus came and lived a righteous life because I was unrighteous and I need to be clothed in righteousness to appear before a holy God. So I need the righteousness of Jesus and I'm going to take hold of that. And Jesus came and he died on the cross and he bore the punishment for sinners like me who deserve justly to be punished. For our own sin, for my own sin, I should be punished by rights. But God's wrath has been poured out upon Christ Jesus in my stead. I accept that. I lay hold of that. I believe that. I need no other righteousness. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus paid it all. God's wrath has been propitiated because he poured it on Christ so that he might not pour it on me. And Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father from whence he will return to gather to himself all of his people from Old Testament times and new, all who have put hope in Yahweh and his promises brought to fulfillment in this person of his son. My hope is in Jesus his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. I need Jesus. I trust Jesus. I want Jesus. And I want his word that comes to me either straight from his mouth or by the pen of the apostles and the prophets. And I want to abide in that word. I want to know the truth and I want to be set free by the truth. I want to have the Son and be set free from the sun, so I will be free to be. This is what biblical Christianity looks like. 
not all the externals. You have to deal with Jesus in Christ alone. In Christ alone, hope is to be found. Let's sing that in response. In Christ alone, number 177, in hymns and grace.